This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. Today, we have on the show David Hollingsworth. He's a teaching assistant at UC San Diego. His specialty is in US and Latin American history, along with international studies. He's also an activist and martial artist. Hey, you two. Thanks for having me. So, we brought David onto the show because there's a couple topics that we thought he'd be great to discuss and teach us more about. The first being Latin American history and how we ended up where we are now. And the other is American suburbs. But before we get into American suburbs, let's first dissect Latin American history. And this might be a dumb question, but I've always wondered, is Latin America including certain countries in South America also, or is it just its own region? Latin America is basically all of Central and South America. And depending on who you ask, also the Caribbean, the Caribbean can also be considered a different area. Um, culturally, there's definitely both similarities and differences. For example, in a lot of the Caribbean countries, they don't speak Spanish. There are some that do speak Spanish, Cuba obviously being the biggest one, but um, you know they were colonized also by the French and different groups as well. So there's not as much of a united language uh, and elements of other culture that that connect the Caribbean as smoothly to Latin America. So we're reading a lot about the what some would call the immigration crisis, which I don't think is a crisis at all, but also a lot about the problems in countries like Venezuela, but just Latin America in general. So how did we get to now? So ever since the United States started looking beyond itself as a country, it wanted to emulate Europe, you know, the, the, the empire aspect of Europe. Of course, a lot of the places that Europeans were going were places that weren't as easy for the U.S. to reach. But Latin America was basically right next door. And so the U.S., ever since it started getting imperial ambitions, which was about the late 1800s, saw Latin America as its own backyard and therefore its own sort of natural territory to get influence in. So the first major intervention happened with the Spanish-American War. And so... Basically, Cuba was already fighting for independence from the Spanish, and the United States joined on the side of Cuba, which sounds very cool. However, they did it to gain Cuba as a sort of territory. And so in 1901, the United States basically forced, uh, forced a new constitution onto Cuba, and it was called the, uh, the Platt Amendment. In their, in their constitution. So the Platt Amendment gave the United States the ability to intervene in Cuba basically whenever it saw fit. And so that was sort of the first big U.S. intervention into Latin America. And that would actually pave the way for Fidel Castro to win in the 1959 Cuban Revolution against the U.S.-backed dictator Fulgencio Batista. And yeah, there's, there's just so much history and it all kind of starts there. 
Now, with Cuba, was it just about territory or were there resources that the Americans wanted? It was kind of a mixture of both, but it seems more from what I've studied that it was more about gaining territory. Um, They also acquired the Philippines and Puerto Rico as part of this deal as well at the end of the Spanish-American War. And that sort of began a a period of the U.S. intervening in Central America. So countries like Nicaragua, um, I believe the Dominican Republic, they they intervened in during this time. A few different places in Central America and the Caribbean specifically. Um, Another really important turning point happened in 1954 with Operation PB Success. But that one requires a little bit of background. So in 1944... There was a nonviolent revolution in Guatemala that overthrew the U.S.-backed dictator that was in power, and they replaced that dictatorship with a democracy, an electoral democracy. Uh, I'll go into detail about the story of Guatemala, but after the U.S. overthrew the democracy in 1954, a young Che Guevara who was there helping the, the Guatemalan democracy, he saw the fall caused by the U.S. and the Guatemalan democracy, it was sort of a social democracy. It wasn't fully communist by any means. So a young Che Guevara saw the fall of of Jacobo Arbenz was the president who was in power uh, when the U.S. overthrew him. A young Che Guevara saw that and he came to this realization that you could not really oppose the U.S. through like peaceful means and you had to foment revolution. And so later he would meet up with Fidel and the other 26th of July movement people, and he would help overthrow the Batista regime. So Guatemala actually connects back to Cuba because that's where Che Guevara was really radicalized. Was Che from Guatemala or he just happened to be there to kind of witness what was going on? He just happened to be there. So he was Argentinian, um, but he went around Latin America multiple times. And the first time he went, he was kind of just you know, a a rich, light-skinned Argentinian just kind of going on a road trip. He definitely had some sort of, you know, he had empathy for the less fortunate, for the indigenous, for the poor. But at the end of the day, he wasn't going to get radicalized. He wasn't going for political reasons. He was just a rich kid on a road trip who just happened to also be, you know, a pretty empathetic, open-minded person. Actually, that's a good segue into you. So how did you get interested in Latin American history, but also about empire and indigenous people, working class people, poor people? I So I have a very mixed background, I guess you could say. So so I am half white, half Mexican. And I, I know I need to put an asterisk there because Mexican is technically an ethnicity, not a race. White is technically a race. But uh, you know, my my mom's family is from Mexico. Um, and so just seeing the different experiences of Mexican-Americans versus just white Americans already kind of opened my eyes a little bit. I would see, for example, if I were hanging out with more of my Latino and Latina friends, there would be different treatment by police, for instance, uh, if we had an interaction with police. On top of that, in terms of class, my family was kind of all over the place. I grew up with a father addicted to crack cocaine. And so there were some times where we were doing well, other times where we weren't doing well. So I've lived in a more rural setting. I lived in Virginia for about seven years of my life. 
I've lived in, you know, low income apartments. I've lived in the suburbs. I've I've lived in a lot of different uh, places, uh, socio socioeconomically speaking. And so just being able to have a view of those different ways of living kind of opened my eyes early on that like, yeah, things aren't equal. And I literally experienced life, you know, I, I think for about seven years of my life, I experienced life as a suburbanite um, from when I was about 11 until 18. Uh, but I also experienced life as a low income person uh, at a lot of other points in my life. And like I said, I lived in Virginia too, which was more of like a, a kind of rural small town life. And so you you just get a view of how things are just definitely not equal when you literally live all those different uh, ways of living. There's there's just no way to argue that things are the same for everyone. So did you know early on, like from high school, that this is the kind of studying you wanted to do? Or did you have more of an awakening in college? So I had more of an awakening in college. I think a problem with history classes in our K through 12 system as they're structured is a lot of it comes down more to memorizing facts, you know, names of lists or excuse me, lists of uh, names and dates and events, but you don't really go into the thematic importance of a lot of these things. And so I had a couple good history teachers, uh, especially in 10th grade. I had an AP Euro teacher named Mr. Green, and he was great. But overall, I just wasn't super engaged with history. And then when I got to college, one, I started getting involved in activism, and that opened my eyes. I got involved in debate, and I also just started taking other classes, whether they're history or just other social science and humanities classes. And they they engage your your critical thinking skills more. They they engage a lot of things that just aren't engaged in K through twelve. And that those three things together, uh, the different approach of higher education, activism, and debate really kind of got me into more into politics and organizing. You mentioned activism. Do you find that finding your political consciousness through activism is different from just finding it through I don't know, Twitter or online or, you know, this observer's political awakening versus a participant's political awakening? Yeah, I would say one of the first things that it does is it definitely makes you feel just more empowered. It makes you feel like you have some agency because on the outside looking in, you kind of get this idea of, oh, wow, it's great that these people are doing those protests but are they ever really changing anything? But having been involved with organizing, there have been a number of victories that I've been involved in. And so it's it's very just affirming and, and hopeful to see that by organizing, you can have an effect. I think another big difference, and this is something that also just depends on the personality of people involved and other factors. But I think as a general statement, a lot of times people who are involved in activism they know there's going to be people of other ideologies. So, you know, say, you know, you kind of identify as just a general like socialist, right? You you might find people that are more kind of like moderate Democrats. You might find communists, anarchists. You might even find some libertarians who are just, you know, actual libertarians who believe in civil liberties. Um, you're, you'll find more of a variety of people. And so I think generally speaking, because of that, you'll be better at Understanding that people might not be coming from the same place that you are, but recognizing that coalition building and, you know, just working toward a better future is important. 
Whereas man with like Twitter and Tumblr, I, I have a Twitter now. I deleted my Tumblr a couple years ago. There are just no assumptions of good faith if someone disagrees with you. Um, and I want to be clear. I, I think if someone says something like, for example, only class matters, racism and sexism are myths. Like obviously that person is wrong. But, you know, if, if you're relatively on the same page that like different types of injustices exist, I think that even when you're on that same page, I think in a lot of online places that there's just no assumption of good faith for people who disagree with you. There's just this very toxic environment that I just don't think is constructive. And and I think just to be clear that when I say it's toxic, I don't just mean angry because I think anger properly channeled is a very important foundation of activism. So it's it's definitely not to say you know, it's not to tone police and be like, oh, well, you should just always be civil to everyone. Uh, I don't believe that. I just believe that if someone is coming from a, another place of, of concern and care, you should, you know, assume that they're they're engaging with things in good faith and they might have different bases of like knowledge and understanding that you do and just, you know, still try to build with them regardless. So maybe activism isn't even the right term. Maybe we could think of it more like organizing or community organizing. And that creates, uh, sounds like, a more practical philosophy and more unity building and more more inclusive. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that analysis. Um, I mean, of course, that being said, you know, there are sometimes examples of, say, activist spaces where there happen to be like a lot of men in charge and those men can silence, you know, the voices of women and non-binary people. Um, so, so it's definitely not universally true, but I think as a general statement, I, I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah, I would definitely say that activists understanding that they're not just going to be around people who agree with them on every single point. They're generally better at, at working with different ways of looking at things, but still trying to build and, and do something constructive. Well, because you have a communal goal. And I think that kind of brings people together. I, I, if we were to go back to martial arts, right? You have all these different people, but you have a communal goal. We're all training in this art that kind of then at least gives you a focal point and you could kind of not have those low hanging fruits be such a big deal. And like you said, I'm sure organizing has a lot of problems and can be problematic, but you're comparing something with a communal goal versus something that has more of a nebulous goal, or you're not quite sure what the goal is, then there's much more ability for it to be chaotic. I would definitely agree. I, I've never thought about it in terms of there being a goal, but I think that's a really on point analysis because yeah ultimately a lot of the people who are part of the very online left you know they might think that we should have a communist utopia or anarchy or whatever but they're oftentimes not building toward that and so they're just kind of angrily shit posting about Karl Marx and there's no sense of purpose there's there's no there's some community i suppose but but not really community that's building toward anything so yeah i think that's a great way to put it yeah, it could be a community of disruption rather than a community of building. So let's go back to where we left off with Guatemala. From what I've read, a lot of the immigration coming from Latin America to the U.S. is no longer Mexicans. More the problems happening in Guatemala and people fleeing Guatemala. Yeah, I would say most of Central America, so Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador... Nicaragua to a lesser extent. So with Guatemala, in 1944, there was the nonviolent revolution. 
that overthrew the dictator at the time that was U.S. backed, and it instilled a a democracy. So, in the first elections that they had, the president was Juan Jose Arevalo. So he was basically a center left Democrat. He made sure that Guatemala actually was democratic. He wasn't trying to concentrate power in his favor or anything like that. And he also did things like legalize labor unions and and other sort of reforms just to make Guatemala a sort of 20th century liberal democracy. And so even then, even just when that happened, the U.S. was already suspicious, you know, especially because during this time, World War II is basically at its end, and the U.S. is already paranoid about the Soviet Union. But nothing too big came of it. Then in the next election, the winner was Jacobo Arbenz. And so Jacobo Arbenz, he was left of Arevalo. He was kind of like an FDR Democrat, except a little bit more to the left, but he cited the New Deal as a big inspiration for his policies. And so what he did was expand voting rights, expand social services, further entrench democracy, a lot of really cool things. But in 1952, he passed a law called Lay 900. So what Lay 900 did was it appropriated unused lands from very large estates in Guatemala, and it distributed it amongst poor people, indigenous people, and other folks in the countryside. Now, the United Fruit Company was a giant presence in Guatemala, and so they were one of the biggest victims of Lay 900, and they were very upset. And so because there were a lot of people that were connected to the United Fruit Company in the United States, they basically cried wolf about Guatemala being communist. So at that point, Eisenhower was now in the presidency uh, after Truman. And so Eisenhower was convinced by his secretary of state and also the head of the CIA, who are who were actually both brothers. They were called the Dulles brothers. Uh, he was convinced that Guatemala was communist or communist sympathizing and needed to be overthrown. Whether or not they actually believe that because the United Fruit Company was pulling the strings or just because the U.S. wanted to sort of enforce its informal empire in Central America is kind of a subject of debate. But however it happened, finally in 1954, the United States overthrew Jacobo Arbenz, installed a military dictator named Castillo Armas. And so Castillo, Castillo Armas ruled until 1957, I believe, where he was killed because Obviously, you're not going to just overthrow a popular social democracy and put in a dictatorship and receive no blowback, right? So he was killed, and there was some infighting about who would rule Guatemala. And so that started a civil war that began in 1960 and did not end until 1996. And I'm just going to repeat the date for people that are listening because it's crazy how long the civil war lasted 1960 to 1996 is when the fighting formally ended and so you can only imagine right you you have this stable social democracy you know guatemala started out in 1944 when it overthrew uh jorge ubico which was the u.s-backed dictator 
that it was very poor, impoverished, didn't have a lot of strong institutions. It was finally starting to turn that around. And for 10 years, it did, which is why in Guatemala, this is called the 10 years of spring. And then all of a sudden, all that work is reversed and Guatemala is thrown into a civil war, which lasts until our lifetimes. It's It just absolutely ravaged Guatemala and it created a lot of the poverty that that made Central America a fertile ground for gang violence. And while this intervention in Guatemala was the the first of its kind in Central America, it wasn't the last. And so we've intervened in El Salvador, Guatemala, again, later on uh, during other parts of the Civil War. We, we tried to suppress the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. When that failed, we funded the Contras, which we can talk about a little bit more later. But, you know, the overarching point is that we have destabilized democracies in Latin America, whether you think it's in the interest of, you know, private capital or U.S. empire or some combination of the two. Uh, we have undermined democracy and human rights repeatedly in Latin America, and that created a lot of the poverty and violence that we see there today. So what right does the U.S. have in going into another country and saying you can't be communist? Because I think there's a baseline assumption that a lot of people have. Oh, they were turning communist. Of course, you should go in and stop it. But it's like, no, if a country wants to go communist, that's their choice, right? Whether you like communism or not, they have sovereignty. So what was the argument that they were even allowed or had the power to just go in there? One of the main things that the United States viewed as a threat was that if you were communist, you were automatically basically a puppet of the Soviet Union. And so their way of thinking, and, and this is kind of a general statement because different presidents had different exact takes on, on how this worked. But generally speaking, they thought that if a country fell to communism, that it was a Soviet satellite just automatically, and therefore a threat to the United States, a threat to Western democratic capitalism everywhere. And so oftentimes, especially in Latin America, if the conflict was between supporting capitalism and U.S. hegemony versus democracy, U.S. capitalist hegemony won out basically every single time. But what's to stop like just using that as an excuse? If I want something from a country or I want to intervene in a country, what's to stop me if I was America, right, to just say, hey, they're communist and now I could go in? Honestly, nothing really. I mean, in my own personal view, we had absolutely zero right, zero real legal basis to to intervene. So it sounds like then Red Scare or saying a country is communist is kind of like a carte blanche where, okay, now I can do whatever I want. And now our version of that is, oh, there's terrorism there. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's a great connection. What the the way we used to use communism as a as a scare tactic now we say the same thing with with terrorists and so that's also part of why for example trump pretended that he saw members of i think he said the muslim brotherhood or isis as part of the the immigrant caravan up to central or from central america uh, up to the us which has zero basis in any sort of evidence whatsoever. But, you know, again, like terrorist is a scare word now, uh, whereas communist used to be that scare word. Interesting that, oh, there used to be communist invaders from USSR in South America. Wait, 
now there's Muslim terrorist groups in South America. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you happen to mention the UFC, or I guess United Fruit Company, <laughs> complaining to the government that, hey, our interests aren't being met. So Sam mentioned the Red Scare and communism, but how much of it was also because of U.S. business interests that they felt, hey, we should expand further and quote-unquote fight communism? Yeah, so my answer, the way I view it is that U.S. business interests and U.S. empire are kind of informally linked because, you know, the U.S. is ultimately in its empire trying to create a sort of informal capitalist sphere of influence rather than, say, an empire in the sense that the Romans or the British uh, established. But there were a large number of people who had been part of the United Fruit Company at, at its you know highest uh, executive levels that were involved now in the CIA, uh, in the U.S. government, especially in the Eisenhower administration. And so there's definitely inarguably a connection. And so Stephen Kinzer, he was the one who wrote sort of the most popular, widely read book about the subject. It's called Bitter Fruit. He basically makes the argument that it was business interests that corrupted U.S. policy during that time. Whereas another historian, Piero Glehesis, uh, he wrote a book called Shattered Hope. And it was about also the Guatemala coup. And he talked about how it was just a, a formal expression of U.S. empire and he even quoted one of the leaders of of the he wasn't in Hakobo Benz's cabinet formally, but he was someone that Hakobo Benz listened to, and his name was Manuel Fortuné. And so Manuel Fortuné, he had actually said they would have overthrown us even if there were no damn bananas, or in other words, they would have overthrown us as an exercise of empire even if the United Fruit Company, the UFC, wasn't there. I didn't know their involvement went back to Guatemala. I just knew them from Nicaragua. And that was ultimately why Reagan decided to back them because the United Fruit Company said, hey, we're having trouble in Nicaragua as well. So I didn't know the UFC had such reach and such history. Yeah. And that's actually where the term Banana Republic comes from, where you have a lot of these multinational uh, food corporations who are in Central America and they are so powerful and so unchecked by a lot of the smaller, weaker countries that are there that they just have a lot of reign over those areas. And, and that's where Banana Republic comes from as a term. So keep taking us through this. So what happened after that? So it caused huge uproar in Latin America after the U.S. overthrew Arbenz. There was also uh, multiple examinations done trying to prove some sort of link to the Soviet Union uh, and Jacobo Arbenz's regime, because even though Jacobo Arbenz himself was more of a sort of social democrat, New Deal-inspired uh, leader, he did have some Guatemalan communists who he consulted, Man Manuel Fortuné being one of them. However, extensive, extensive research done, even by the CIA, turned up absolutely zero evidence of any links to the Soviet Union whatsoever. And so to reiterate, I believe I had said this before, Che Guevara was actually there in Guatemala when Jacobo Arbenz fell. And so the lesson that Che took from that was, 
okay, you know, uh, electability is nice, but we also have to be prepared to stand our ground and violently counter U.S. influence. And then he would he would link up with Fidel Castro and the rest of the 26th of July movement in Mexico City and eventually overthrow the U.S.-backed Bautista regime in 1959. Why was the U.S. so afraid of USSR's involvement in the world? So there's a lot of ways that different historians interpret it. I see it as the U.S. just straight up being afraid of communism. Uh, I'm actually not at all a fan of Stalin, but I think for them, it was less being disgusted by a lot of his human rights abuses and what he did in Eastern Europe, and more so just this fear that workers could rise up and topple the the sort of bougie democracy that the United States have or, or has. Uh, and actually, during the Russian Revolution in 1917, after they were victorious, there was actually a lesser known Red Scare during that time where the U.S. even sent some troops to Russia to try to quell things until it just became apparent that the Soviet Union was around to stay. And so that deeply scared a lot of people in power in the United States. And even more so during the 1930s, during the Great Depression, because there was very legitimate fear that the U.S. government could have been toppled and a socialist system set up in place. And so a lot of people actually say, uh, a lot of scholars say that that FDR with his New Deal policies, he actually saved capitalism because if sort of runaway, unchecked capitalism wasn't countered at all, it, it would have just led to to leftist revolution. I think a lot of people, when they think about politics or have political opinions, they think they could think about politics without thinking about economics at all. Connect how economics or capitalism and U.S. government are one and the same thing and why a different economic system then becomes a threat to our political system. So I think one just quick example of how capitalism is built into our democracy is the fact that we have such loose campaign finance laws and made even worse by the 2010 Supreme Court decision, Citizens United, which basically at its core said that money is speech. And so it drastically allowed or allowed for a, a drastic increase in the amount of private money that can be spent on elections. And so instead of candidates having a level playing field where it's a battle of ideas and they have the same resources to work with. It's just this intense competition to try to appeal to private, powerful donors who will then, you know, finance not only your election, but also all your subsequent re-election campaigns. And so that's just one one drop in the giant bucket of how US capitalism and democracy are sort of intertwined. And and also how that capitalism can undermine democracy because you'll see lobbying for issues that are in no way popular with the average American, but are still being enacted because that's what the donors want rather than that being what the average person wants. How do you implement a system where some power, whether it's through capitalism or feudalism or legacy or nepotism, where they don't keep accumulating enough power where they can control the whole game, the whole system. And capitalism still doesn't have an answer for that. So then capitalism itself can feed into a system that leads to oligarchy or empire once again, where we're back to feudalism once again, right? 
So I think that's uh, for the listeners, a lot of the criticism of capitalism in association with politics or government, it becomes the capital, the chips, the thing you count the score of the game. And the more you have of these chips, the more power you have on the board. And those who accumulate the most chips then have the most sway what happens over the board. And you could think of the board or the rules as the government. But unlike a board game where, I don't know, I accumulate enough chips, I can't change the rules of the game. It's already pre-written. In reality, in the real world that we live in, if I accumulate enough chips, the game is responsive, meaning now I can change the rules also. Let's go back to the Reagan era. He gave amnesty right, to a lot of immigrants, especially those from Latin America. Was that kind of almost a nod of the hat to say, like, we fucked you guys up, so the least I can do is kind of give you guys amnesty? Because it seemed like there was much more of a charitable immigration policy back then. Was it because of kind of a little bit of old school noblesse? For those of you who don't know, we don't have any noblesse anymore. But even though there was problem with empire or feudalism or whatever, there was this kind of belief or character trait of the upper class that uh, we should still do the right thing for people every once in a while, right? So do you think amnesty by Reagan and during that era, the more charitable compared to today immigration policies, was that noblesse? Was it kind of like a penance for like fucking you guys up? Yeah, I, I think that's fair to say. It also, the, the name of the policy, IRCA, I, I believe also sort of increased like surveillance along the border and all that. And so it was kind of part of this package where, and it's a talking point even today where you say, oh, we should make things easier for immigrants, but also beef up our border. And so that was kind of the root of that. Although ironically, it was a much more humane policy than, you know, and almost any immigration act we've passed since. And for those of you guys who don't know, our current immigration court system, the American Bar Association this month, which is March 2019, released a report saying that the U.S. immigration courts are on the brink of collapse. It's basically total chaos. Nobody knows what's going on. It's underfunded. They don't have enough judges. They don't even know what the rules are. They don't know what our policies are right now. And I think it might be even on purpose. Maybe they just want to shut the whole system down. So that's where we're at right now. But David, take us back to Latin America before we got to this existential crisis with the immigration courts. So basically between the overthrow of our Benz and the, the descent into civil war in Guatemala, you really see Latin America as this battleground between U.S. interests and the left. JFK actually had tried to turn things around with this policy called Alliance for Progress, where he gave aid to different Latin American countries, and that aid was basically for making things better. But the problem is that that aid package didn't really come with stipulations for the leaders to be more democratic, to respect human rights more. And so a lot of those leaders got that money and just pocketed it, or maybe launched some small, tiny program, but then the other money just disappeared or, or was wasted. So ultimately, it was this battle between the U.S. trying to enforce its interests and the different people of Latin America trying to enforce their own. So by the 1980s, things had gotten very ugly, and a lot of this, this Cold War battle 
had extended even to South America, where the countries were generally bigger, more stable, and a little bit more affluent than those of Central America. So like Chile, for example, uh, the U.S. backed a coup in 1973, overthrowing the democratically elected Salvador Allende, and they put in the dictator Agosto Pinochet. And before that, Chile had had a democracy uninterrupted for almost 100 years. So they had a very stable society uh, that we helped wreck. And so coming into the 1980s, there are a lot of dictatorships in Latin America that are U.S.-backed, U.S.-funded, right? Um, One place where there was an exception, however, other than Cuba, which was sort of the boogeyman of U.S. policy in Latin America. Another place was Nicaragua. And... That was because in 1979, they had overthrown the U.S.-backed um, the US backed Somoza dynasty and installed instead a sort of left social democracy in there instead that the Sandinistas had established, um, but then also, also uh, established democracy in there as well, elections. I think there's also a point that we need to make about why U.S. would back dictators, because thinking about what we know about the U.S., the way we grew up, what we were taught, you might be skeptical. Like, why would the U.S. want a dictator in another country? We're a democratic country. Even for capitalism's sake, you would think dictator is no good, right? But if you wanted control over a different country or a lot of different countries, it would be too complex of a system to try to control another democracy. Whereas if it was one person in charge of the whole thing, the agility of the whole country relies on that one person. So you just tell that one person what to do and the whole country moves. So if you're thinking about the world as pawns, yeah, maybe for your country, you want a democracy, but everybody underneath you, you wouldn't want a democracy. You would want a dictatorship. Otherwise, they would no longer be underneath you. So it goes counterintuitive to what we might think. Why would US want a dictatorship? And it only makes sense to have a dictatorship if what you want is control and a direct line of control. You just have to control that one person and that one person controls the whole country. Yeah, and that's a great point. And and that being said too, obviously the US was planning a lot, but not everything that happened went according to plan. And I don't just mean, say, Fidel succeeding in 1959, the Sandinista succeeding in 1979. But for example, a, a lot of the dictators that they put into power they kind of hoped that they'd be more reserved and quote-unquote moderate. And most of the time, it would backfire. Well, going back to why we wouldn't want a dictatorship in our own country, right? When you centralize power, a lot can go wrong. So even if you want a puppet in another country, when you centralize power to that one person, if he's listening to you, that's great. If not, they have a lot of power now that you gave to them. Exactly, yeah. And so... A lot of these dictators were just so corrupt and violent that in a way that the U.S. hadn't accounted for that actual members of the CIA, while they were undermining these people, lamented the fact that the leftists were their enemies because they were the ones that were actually way more disciplined and had way more integrity than the military dictators and other just clowns that the U.S. was trying to prop up. Like, this is something a lot of CIA officers just openly admitted to. Um, And there was actually, because of how much things had escalated in the 1980s, and I'll get into more of that in a moment, uh, there was one officer who's quoted as saying, 
what I wouldn't give now for an Arbenz, but we've killed all of the Arbenzes. Uh, Arbenz, again, being the, the one who was overthrown in Guatemala in 1954. They had escalated things into such a dramatic, violent confrontation in Central America and Latin America as a whole, but especially Central America, that if there were a reset button, they probably would have gone back and tried to negotiate more. And so to get a little bit more into what was going on in the 1980s, so Nicaragua had succeeded in a socialist democratic revolution. And part of it was actually because of the character of the Somoza dynasty itself, because the Somozas weren't as much of a modern capitalist dictatorship where they're just listening to industry. They were kind of more of a classic oligarchy where it was literally just the Samosas and the friends of the Samosas who benefited from the regime. And so there were actually a lot of very affluent people in Nicaragua who opposed the Samosa dictatorship. And so that made the Samosa dictatorship easier to overthrow than the U.S.-backed dictatorships in El Salvador and Guatemala, uh, which, you know, by this point did have another dictator uh, in power. And so... In, in El Salvador and Guatemala, then during the 1980s, there was this very big fear among the U.S. that the leftist rebels would win there as well, and that Central America then as a whole would fall to communism, and then, you know, there'd be communists right on your back door, and they'd team up with the Sandinistas in Nicaragua and also Fidel in Cuba and, you know, invade the U.S. or just be there as a threat. And, and that was... Uh, a really big fear of the United States at the time. So going into Sandinistas, let's go into the illegal selling of arms. We were already talking about Reagan, and he never went to jail, but a lot of people underneath him went to jail. So go into that. Yeah, absolutely. So basically, though the U.S. was an empire, there were some voices who, depending on your interpretation, there were some voices in Congress who either kind of opposed U.S. empire or at least wanted U.S. empire to be nicer. And so it was no secret that the a lot of the U.S.-backed dictators were just committing atrocity after atrocity. And so a lot of Democrats in Congress basically spearheaded efforts to make sure that the U.S. couldn't just directly uncritically fund a lot of these groups. And so there was a law that was passed that basically prevented Reagan from directly funding the Contras. Uh, and just a real quick aside, so the Contras were basically the remnants of the Somoza dynasty um, in Nicaragua that were, you know, trying to fight to restore the old dictatorship. And they were actually started by the South American Argentine dictatorship. They were the ones who funded them at first because Jimmy Carter was probably the only Cold War president who actually had some regard for the people of Latin America. And so he stopped a lot of aid, uh, to dictatorships and with some other dictatorships, he basically said, you need to shape up or else we're going to, you know, lower our funding towards you. And so he actually, even though he didn't support the Sandinistas, he kind of adapted like a neutral cold shoulder stance toward them, uh, even after they won in 1979. To stop you right there for a second. Also, you could go back to our previous episode with Tom Petruno, where we also talk about Jimmy Carter and how basically he saved the country from a lot of the problems that Richard Nixon created. And then Ronald Reagan got a lot of the credit, but Jimmy Carter was the guy who sacrificed his presidency to save the American economy. 
which is not to say Jimmy Carter doesn't have problems of his own, but in the lineup of ghouls that we had, he didn't look as bad. Yeah, no, but but good point about Jimmy Carter. He just had a lot of unfortunate things catch up to America that just happened to do so during his presidency that were going to happen regardless, like the revolution in Iran. But anyway, focusing on Latin America, um, he he was basically cold shoulder neutral toward Nicaragua. And so the Argentine military dictatorship actually was the one who initially funded the Contras. And then when Reagan came into office, he was like, oh, bro, don't even worry. We got you now. And so that's when the U.S. started selling weapons to Iran. And this was when, after the 1979 you know, Iranian revolution, there, there was the uh, extreme Islamist government uh, in Iran. We were selling weapons to them, of all people, uh, and using the profits to fund the Contras in Nicaragua. Now, there's no... Hard proof that Reagan knew that this was going on. I think it's fair to guess that he knew, but to be fair, we can't say for sure. Um, but it was uh, a lot of other people that were involved in the scandal, including Elliot motherfucking Abrams. Go into Elliot Abrams. So Elliot Abrams, I don't remember his exact position, but basically he was one of the most prominent people involved in the Iran-Contra scandal. And he just has an extensive history with wholeheartedly supporting, you know, atrocities in Latin America, specifically in Central America. And so with this whole thing going on in Venezuela, which luckily seems to be petering out right now, choosing Elliot Abrams to be the human rights envoy there is, I mean, it's literally choosing the Fox to be the special human rights envoy to a chicken coop it doesn't make any sense at all so this is where for a lot of people they didn't understand the connection between latin america and the middle east and this connection starts here this is why it's the iran contra scandal and that's why i think a lot of people had a hard time wrapping their mind around it because it's like us then iran and then from there back to latin america but isn't that also kind of how a lot of conspiracy theorists made the connection with Middle Eastern or Islamic terrorism. They're kind of using that narrative of the Iran-Contra, except they think Reagan is a good guy, but it's kind of like the Mandela effect. They don't know what the connection, how that connection from Iran and the Middle East connects to uh, Latin America. They just know, ah, yeah, there's something there. I don't remember what exactly it was. It couldn't have been because of Reagan. But there's some transport, some pathway. So from there, I think they came up with that conspiracy theory that Islamic terrorists were coming from the Middle East to Latin America and from there envoying up to the U.S. But it's like, like I said, the Mandela effect. And if you don't know what that is, you make up a memory that didn't exist. I think they're kind of retconning the past. They're like, yeah, they've always had this terrorist connection. They don't know it had to do with Reagan and the Iran-Contra scandal. It, it kind of circles back to today. It's kind of uh, reworking a lot of the same old ideas and narratives, right? From communism to terrorism, from the Middle East connecting to Latin America. Exactly, yeah. And I think also there's been a shift in priorities where during the Cold War, the U.S. really wanted to make sure there was no quote-unquote communism in its own backyard. 
And now that the Cold War is over, it's not as big of a worry. And now, obviously, the big resource is oil. And so the U.S. kind of shifts its imperial ambitions toward the Middle East. And then with the with the connection to of, as you pointed out, you know, the, the boogeyman used to be communist. Now it's terrorist. You have that link. And then you have the Iran-Contra scandal. And so there's all these different links that are being formed. And you also marry two boogeymen, which is two different brown people, Muslims and Latin Americans, right? Which they finally were able to do under Trump. Absolutely. But going back over the overall patterns that we're seeing with everything you're talking about, it seemed like, okay, so if we go way back, we had feudalism, which evolved into mercantilism, which evolved into capitalism. And it seemed like it was a natural evolution, once again, from capitalism to socialism. A lot of countries were like, okay, we tried this, we tried that, we tried that. And now, naturally, this seems like the next evolution. And the U.S., through its sheer power, just kind of kiboshed that next evolution. And even though they kiboshed it, you can't kill an idea. And it keeps resurfacing again and again. I'm not saying socialism is the end point. It's not. After that, there'll be another thing. But it seems like that is the arc of history. And the U.S. just was hell-bent on stopping that. And I think that's part of their fear is because they knew, oh, crap, we're going from walking on all four legs to just two legs. We got to stop it somehow. Yeah, absolutely. And there has been since the end of the Cold War what Latin American historians and just other people who work in the uh, social sciences and study Latin America call the pink tide. And so the pink tide is... A, a rising tide of leftist or even just left, like center left, uh, elected uh, Latin American leaders. And so some of the ones that are part of that right now, even though the coin, the, the term was coined about 10 years ago, um, there's Evo Morales in Bolivia, who might actually be my favorite elected leader in the world right now, personally, just looking at my own politics. Um, there's also Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, or AMLO, as he's called, who just became the president of Mexico, um, and a few other leaders, as well as not elected leaders like like in Cuba, um, who still keep that spirit of leftism alive in Latin America. And so it's definitely not defeated uh, conclusively. But I think the U.S. is less scared because there isn't a really big hegemonic communist power the way there was with the Soviet Union. And yeah, you don't need the Soviet Union. These ideas just appeal to people. Like, I don't think people in the U.S. who are interested in these ideas, it's not because they had some love for USSR. It's because these ideas, just at face value, and the more you think about it, they just sound appealing. We grew up on Star Trek. Utopia just sounds appealing. Whether we could ever get to utopia or not, probably not. But we're going to aim there, and that's how we get progress, right? So... Thinking that the USSR was this boogeyman it just sounds so unrealistic. It's like if the majority of people are workers, you don't think the majority of people would want more rights for themselves. It just seems natural. So ultimately, it was just like a trend. The US was trying to use its power to stop this economic trend or this global trend, right? And, and the trend never ended. And we're still trying to go correct that course to where it should have started a long time ago. But Going back to the 80s, they were doing whatever they could to stop this trend, this move towards socialism. And I think another fear of it was that if they went this way, it would cut the U.S. out. 
right? Kind of like in Vietnam and in Asia, it's not just the fact that it would ripple back to the U.S. Whether it rippled back to the U.S. or not, as far as toppling of government, it didn't matter because you would cut us out of trade. You would just trade with each other, not with us. And that would also be against American interests. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of the main reasons, if not the main reason that the U.S. became so powerful during the 20th century was after World War One, you know, Europe was in a tough spot. U.S. kind of stepped up uh, to be one of the biggest producers in the world at the time. And then after World War II, it really was the United States and the Soviet Union that were the two economic superpowers of the world. And the U.S. kept trying to expand its markets as capitalism dictates. And so, yeah, absolutely. They were petrified of a variety of things, including being cut out uh, of having those those economic ties. Yeah. And right now we have the U.K. struggling with Brexit. And a lot of the anger is, where's our money? The immigrants must be taking our money. And if the British people want to see where their money went, just look at their assets and then look at World War One and the size of their assets afterwards. And then look at World War Two and the size of their assets afterwards. And the thing about money is there's a ledger. You see where the money went. A lot of that money went from the UK to the US because they needed guns and butter from us twice. So it was really wealth redistribution where the wealthiest country in the world was England. And then we became the wealthiest country here in the US by basically extracting their money. Exactly. And they did it willingly. Yep. So a lot of the problems of Brexit now, it started a long time ago. Yeah, no, that that seems very fair to say. And then you could say that the United States is kind of doing the same thing, but instead of sending it to a, a country, they're, they, they are so invested in supporting private industry that private industry has just leached so much out of the state. And that's why you see a lot of issues that we have today that weren't as much of an issue a generation ago or two generations ago. And that's the thing. War and conflict can make the people poor. But conflict like this can make private industry richer. And going back to World War II and even inklings of it in World War I, a lot of the biggest companies at the time were talking to the U.S. government and there's records of it. Maybe we could have a permanent war economy because war is so good for business. Good thing that never happened. I wonder how it would look different from today <laughs> if we just overlay the two together. Yeah. So... We've been talking about war and corporations benefiting, but an issue that I want to delve more into is actually gang violence. Trump brings this up every now and then when he mentions MS-13. But here in Los Angeles, I can't help but think that a lot of that is created by us and the policies that we've had towards South and Central America. Is this something you can expand upon? Yeah, absolutely. So... About MS-13 in particular, that was actually a gang that started here in the prisons of South California that then those people were deported back to Central America and therefore they created MS-13. But in a more general sense, um, just the fact that we've been willing to just raise the earth over there, just do whatever we needed to to protect our interests and to support governments that would protect our interests over protecting human rights uh, I think really just paved the way for the poverty and desperation that led to these drug gangs. Uh, and just just to, you know, really paint it here, uh, a UN investigation into Guatemala and El Salvador, I forget which is which, but in one of the countries, 
of the human rights atrocities that were committed, uh, 93% were committed by the military dictatorship. I believe that was El Salvador. And then in Guatemala, 86% of the human rights atrocities uh, were committed by the military government. And the remaining 7 and 14% respectively wasn't even all just the leftist uh, liberation movement fighters, but also people who weren't directly involved in either side. Uh, and so sometimes we'll hear the the defense from people on the right who say, oh, well, you know, those leftist guerrillas, their hands weren't exactly clean either. Yes, but if you at all, if you were to have a scale and put the atrocities of the right-wing military dictatorships versus the leftist liberation movements, it's, it's not even close. It's, it's not even comparable at all. Um, it's just overwhelmingly the dictatorships that committed those atrocities. Could you imagine a situation in the next five or 10 years where the U.S. would start uninvolving itself in Latin America? Or you feel like it's so intertwined and entrenched, we might never see that in our lifetime? That's a really good question. I, I think it would never be completely uninvolved. I think depending on who's in power, because despite the fact that all the presidents are guilty of very bad things, there are levels to it. Um, and I do believe that if someone was elected to office, they could make a difference in our involvement in Latin America, you know, supporting more like human rights and, and democratic efforts. Um, but even then, it wouldn't be perfect. I don't want to idolize, uh, idealize it. I don't want to make it sound like, you know, if Bernie Sanders or Andrew Yang or Elizabeth Warren or someone wins that everything's going to be great in Latin America because a lot of these things just go beyond the scope of, of our elected leaders. Um, but I do think things can absolutely improve. So what all this said, what is Latin America now? So it's kind of all over the place and it really depends on both region and then also just specific area uh, within any given country. South America, south of of like Colombia, where like a lot of the drugs are produced. Um, so like, for example, in Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, uh, they're they're a lot more stable and they've always been kind of more stable than Central America has anyway, um, both because they're further from the United States and also just because they're they're bigger as well. Uh, so they've had time to grow stronger um, and, and develop stronger institutions. So you kind of see instability, instability in a lot of places. But generally speaking, uh, Central America does have a lot of poverty uh and violence, as well as like Venezuela and Colombia, because that's where like a lot of drugs actually come from. Um, but that said, it's also not like an apocalyptic, like Mad Max scenario either. Like it's not constant violence literally all the time. Would you say it's fair to say then that we have this picture of Latin America as Mad Max, but maybe it's more like varied, right? Like you're saying, but the areas that are bad just the potency is a lot higher and it just kind of disproportionately makes it look a lot worse, the whole region, I mean. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I definitely don't want to downplay the violence either. Uh, I actually have a lot of friends who have lost family members to the drug cartels. Uh, I actually have a friend who is undocumented here who her father was killed by the drug cartels. Her mom got a call saying, you and the rest of your family are next. And they fled that night to come here to the United States and not to get too much on my soapbox. But how can you say to that mom coming with her kids, 
after her husband and the father of her children has been murdered, how can you say to her, no, we don't care, sorry, go home, or, oh, you're an illegal, what are you doing? I mean, just absolute lack of humanity, in my opinion. Speaking on drug cartels, it's kind of frustrating and also sad because a lot of the power of drug cartels is because of the consumer base here in the U.S. And it's something that we hate other countries for, but we're the ones creating that problem with our capital. Absolutely. Yeah. And and going off of that, you know, the war on drugs, it incarcerates so many people here. And also, like you said, you know, it it promotes the, the trafficking and trade of stuff like cocaine. And a lot of the people who lobby to keep the war on drugs going are private companies that use prison labor in, in creating their products. And you also see, for example, um, police unions and jail guard unions, you know, you see them being some of the biggest lobbyists for the war on drugs because their employment depends on it. So I think there's definitely a huge intersection of, of you know, private interests and these these drug cartels, not just in the fact that U.S. empire linked with private interests have caused the instability in the first place, but because our current policies are are resulting from the same thing. So, Sam, earlier you had actually made a really good point about how basically the U.S. economic system kind of plants the seeds of its own destruction of its democracy and kind of its better elements, basically. And that's actually a really good transition to talking about the U.S. suburbs, because The U.S. suburbs are a direct result of post-World War II liberalism uh, that was brought about by a lot of like FDR's policies and then other policies thereafter that were kind of in the spirit or in the shadow of FDR. So the suburbs of the United States kind of sort of existed. There's like a couple small suburbs uh, before World War II, but... Really, there was an explosion of the suburbs in World War II or uh, after World War II, thanks in part to public investment and urban planning. So, you know, next time you hear someone from the suburbs be like, government spending is evil, it's all a waste. It's like, dude, you literally live in a place created by government subsidies, but okay. And so there was this rapid building of the suburbs, right? And In the meantime, there was the GI Bill for people that were returning from World War II. And so the GI Bill, among other things, made it easier to get a home. You would put down a very low down payment. You would get a very low interest rate and you would be able to refinance your home very easily. So it just became very easy to to get a home after World War II. And so other policies such as the the Highway Interstate Act of Eisenhower's administration, they expanded the highway system so that you know that you could travel more from the suburbs to the city for your job. And so what that did, among other things, was there was what is called white flight from the cities to the suburbs. And with that went all the money, it went all the capital that all these like affluent white people had, and they were now in the suburbs, and there was the creation of shopping centers in the suburbs uh, so that people no longer had to go downtown to get all the shopping done. And so previously, you know, even if you were, say, a lawyer or a teacher or something, you still probably lived in the city unless you were just really, really, really rich. 
Um, you would live in the city. You would, you know, be alongside people from different socioeconomic statuses. Uh, you would even get your shopping done in the same places as them, hang out in the same public spaces like parks. And, of course, there was some disparity. But after white flight to the suburbs and, and also the flight of certain people of color as well, mostly light-skinned Asian Americans, light-skinned Latinos and Latinas and stuff, um, but definitely not black folks and definitely not, you know, other darker-skinned folks. Um after you had this flight to suburbia, then you have all that wealth leaving, but you also have people just not interacting with people outside of their own socioeconomic class. Uh, John Tiford, in his book, The Metropolitan Revolution, he calls this new reconfiguring of American society edge cities, where instead of having life centered around the city and then there's downtown and that's where everyone is now there's all these fragmented edge cities where everyone is kind of off doing their own thing in their own little suburban bubbles and downtown is left dilapidated or sometimes which we've kind of seen more recently downtown is revitalized but only as a certain sort of attraction for a certain like sort of people as opposed to being somewhere where everyone goes and so because of that because you have a bunch of affluent people who are really very rarely around people who aren't themselves other than, you know, maybe hiring a gardener um, or seeing someone who works minimum wage at a retail store. They're not really connecting with other people. And so you have this closed off sense of, well, I'm a suburban taxpayer and I support myself. I don't understand why other people can't support themselves. And so you get this sort of grassroots, I suppose, conservatism that pops up in the suburbs. And that's something that Nixon and then later Ronald Reagan uh, really take advantage of in their campaigns, where you have this new, you know, conservative grassroots movement in the suburbs that, again, was the actual product of New Deal post-World War II U.S. liberalism. But but what it created uh, helped lead to its downfall. And that's why you don't see that's partially why you don't see as many like what we would call New Deal Democrats or Democrats that are very heavy in like labor and good social programs or, you know, uh, expanding uh, social programs. In a lot of ways, it connects back to what you were talking about with Latin America, because it's kind of an extension of the same policies. It's the same minds who came up with how we're going to deal with Latin America and how we're going to deal with things domestically. First of all, just like in South America. And even with this misguided fight against communism, it's the separating of capital, capital over here. And these shit countries are over there. You guys stay over there and we're going to keep your shit and we're going to keep extracting resources or goods or power or whatever we need from you guys over there. And it's the same thing in the U.S. with the suburbs. Capital flies all over there and leaving these other regions, like you said, dilapidated, but the city and the government has a lot more control in these areas also. And another thing that connects back to the problems that we created in Latin America is you were mentioning the war on drugs. The war on drugs really started when the drugs started getting to the suburbs. So capital had left, whites had left, they're in their own little pocket away from the dilapidation protecting their capital. And then all of a sudden, the problems that were caused in Latin America, follow them there, which is in the form of drugs, because they want it, right? And there's also a history about how drugs 
got to the urban city in the first place, which goes back to kind of like what you were talking about earlier with the Iran-Contra stuff, making money. They needed money. The U.S. said you couldn't fund certain groups, so they had to figure out other ways to fund certain groups. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it really is all connected. And I think a good way of boiling it down is when you have capitalism, there's always the the danger and in the long term, the inevitability of the accumulation of capital among powerful people. And that's why something like it was like 95 percent of profits of new profits that were generated last year went toward the richest, the absolute richest people in the world. You're, you're having this sort of shift and we're seeing it in many parts of the world, uh, not just in the United States, but we're having this shift away from social democracy back toward the sort of more unfettered capitalism of the early 1900s, like in the 1920s. Uh, and it's also related to that, no coincidence that the 2008 Great Recession uh, was the worst economic crisis we had seen since the Great Depression because we set up a lot of those those safety nets, you know, in the age of social democracy. Again, not just here in the U.S., but in other parts of the world, such as Western Europe. But as capital has slowly eroded a lot of those social safety nets, we're, we're fragmenting further, and wealth is accumulating in, in staggering record ways, uh, uh, staggeringly unequal ways. So yeah, I, I think drawing those connections between Latin America and even just within the United States itself is a very important connection to make. And we take for granted suburbs as something being natural, but there's nothing natural about it, not even in how it was funded and created, but the look of it. So much of modernity is created from the suburbs. And you could almost say this modern isolation and, and feeling of being separate from the community also started at the same time suburbs did. Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the biggest problems with how the suburbs are designed, and I really like the fact that you said that we can't just account for this as being natural because this was, again, very directly planned. And like, that sounds like a conspiracy theory, but I mean, it was just urban planners who designed it. It's not even that sexy of like a conspiracy theory. It's it's just how it happened. Um, but yeah, the way the suburbs are designed is that there's really no communal space. I mean, most suburbs will have like a park that has like, you know, a couple benches and maybe a basketball court, but it's not really designed for spaces of community and gathering. Um, you also even see that, for example, on some newer college campuses, I did my undergrad at UC Irvine, and there was no real central place for people to congregate. And part of that was actually because they didn't want protesters to protest at UC Irvine. But yeah, going back to the suburbs, they're is no places of community. And so that creates feelings of isolation that we see today. And that kind of goes back also to what we were saying about unintended consequences. I'm sure the people who are doing post-World War II planning, they weren't thinking, oh, I'm going to make people 70 years from now super miserable and isolated, but it is the result of not acknowledging our reality of social animals. And the problem that capital faces is it wants you to not care about other people and it not wants you it doesn't want you to perform excuse me it doesn't want you to form you know class consciousness or racial justice gender etc uh consciousness but at the same time it also wants you to to function 
Uh, and the way things are designed now, we feel so isolated and lost that it's actually getting in our in the way of us being able to efficiently function as workers and as producers in the economy. And also capitalism and even like this manufacturing assembly line, conveyor belt, industrial revolution kind of thinking as dogma wouldn't really exist without the suburbs. You really needed to put the final stamp like capitalism and the U.S. or capitalism and U.S. government are married together forever, signed, sealed and delivered through the suburbs. This is where you really buy in to the quote unquote American dream, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And and it, it's it's a big stamp of American capitalism. And it also relates to the Cold War because the suburbs were sort of contrasted as this ideal ideal lifestyle against the Soviet Union. And so there was actually this pressure for people to go to the suburbs that put a lot of people there who might not have even wanted to go there. Um, for example, you know, going to the suburbs and, and starting a nuclear family. Well, if you're gay or, you know, or if you're a lesbian, basically, if you're just not cisgendered or heterosexual, you know, that is not a lifestyle that you necessarily want. Right. And so a lot of people were not forced, but pressured into the suburbs, because if you were able to afford that lifestyle, but you didn't conform, all of a sudden you're going to be asked, are you a Soviet spy? And especially in the early parts of the Cold War, uh, when McCarthyism was really taking off. So not only is suburbia seen as this, this place of affluence and the pinnacle of the American dream, but it's also something that a lot of people were genuinely pressured into going toward uh, otherwise, they would be labeled, again, a Soviet sympathizer, even a Soviet spy. Because most people are employees. You work for somebody. Even if entrepreneurship just bloomed, still, the majority of Americans will be working for somebody else. They're an employee. They're a worker. But what the suburbs also did was then it did this weird sleight of hand where you didn't identify as a worker, as an employee. And you started identifying as a suburbanite and you started identifying with these aspirational ideals and you started identifying more with the owners than with your own kind. And that's what I meant by this kind of uh, psychological marriage of U.S. and capitalism. It gave birth to the suburbs. Absolutely. Yeah. And you kind of touched on the themes of possibly my favorite book from from my master's reading list. It's called Staying Alive by Jefferson Cowie. And, you know, it, it talks about how the suburbs uh, created that right wing shift and killed class consciousness. Um, but also responsible for that shift, too, were both the bureaucracy of labor unions, not the actual rank and file, but the bureaucracy of them and the Democratic Party. Um, and kind of going back to this theme of capitalism containing the seeds of its own corruption, the Democratic Party, as time went on, gradually succumbed more and more to special interests, um, also tried to appeal more to sort of like suburban liberals as opposed to the working class. And so you see this shift away from class consciousness, not just because the suburbs uh, dulled people's class consciousness, but because the Democratic Party itself moved away from the New Deal and more toward, again, that sort of suburban liberal market that it was going toward. And then meanwhile, the bureaucracy of unions 
Uh, and this is a general statement because there, there have always been some great unions that do great works, work even at the very top of their leadership. But in general, a lot of them really bought into the idea of what they called during the time of World War II and after the the truce between labor and industry or the truce between labor and capital, where they didn't see the need for more militant forms of labor action because they believed it was all good and that they could just sit down at the table and just talk to bosses. And so you kind of see the union bureaucracy act more like the bosses they were supposed to be negotiating with uh, than their actual rank and file. And also on top of that, when you see, you, you know, after World War II, you also had people of color and women coming more into the workplace, uh, into desegregated areas. Uh, you basically see these movements for equality. And unfortunately, a lot of labor bureaucracy, like the rest of the of U.S. society, it wasn't by any means a problem of labor. And labor was actually usually ahead of the curb. But that being said, a, a lot of people in the labor bureaucracy uh, were very white, very male, and socially conservative sometimes. And so when you had stuff like the civil rights movement happening, there was resistance in trying to diversify organized labor. And there was also a resistance to trying to unionize stuff like the service sector, because that was mostly where like women and people of color worked. Um, and so there was a resistance to to unionizing those sectors, which has massively come back to bite us in the ass today because so many of the blue collar labor jobs that were unionized yesterday, you know, half a century ago, no longer exist or are no longer in the United States. And obviously the service sector is one of the most common employers now. And yet some of the worst pay labor conditions uh, very, very rarely unionized. Uh, and part of that actually traces back to the decision of a lot of labor bureaucracies to not try to organize those groups of people. Our biggest employer industry is also our worst industry as far as worker rights. And I don't know if you want to call it ironic or funny or sad, but it is what it is, right? And it doesn't seem like a coincidence, right? Or maybe you could think of it as a coincidence, but somehow it worked out. Our biggest industry is also an industry that doesn't have unions and the lowest pay. Yep, absolutely. And so, you know, one of the biggest questions headed into this Democratic primary is, are we going to kind of let these trends continue or are we going to try to put a stop to them? Now, I'm not someone who personally thinks that electing, again, like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Andrew Yang is going to solve all of our problems. But I do think some of the Democrats represent more of an FDR approach where they are going to at least bring back some regulations, have better labor practices, uh, expand social services, basically, you know, kind of bring us back a little bit more toward that post-World War II prosperity that we enjoyed, but also this time being more inclusive of women and people of color. Um, whereas, you know, there are a lot of other Democrats who are just kind of like, oh, yeah, let's keep, you know, doing the same thing. So I think that's what we kind of are looking at in this 2020 primary. Although even that being said, it does seem like there's a lot more structural barriers to getting some of those same changes that were a little bit easier to get under uh, FDR. And I'm glad you brought up unions because, and this connects back to the Democratic Party now, but when the suburbs came, it also created a class struggle where it became unions versus suburbs, where 
it was almost like, no, I couldn't be pro-union or I don't even want to be part of a union. I want to live in the suburbs. And people who are in unions, they live in the ghetto or they live in the inner city. And so you don't want to, like I said earlier, you don't want to identify that way, but also you thought of it as something adversarial. Unions and suburbs are in conflict. They're adversarial of each other when they shouldn't be. They could actually still be the same thing, right? Theoretically. But I think because of aspiration and how you wanted to appear to yourself or think of yourself, and maybe it was first forced upon by people, but either way, we bought into the suburb idea and mentality. Once you buy into that, you don't want anything to do with unions because then we go back to what we were talking about with diversity. You associate unions with poor people or maybe uneducated people of color. Or, you know, you're like, I'm different from them now, or I'm aspiring to be different from them now. I want to eventually graduate out of unions and get to a better place. And suburbs became that kind of escape, this escape from my own community. Like, if I really hate people, I don't want to be around people anymore. Where can I escape to? And suburbs became that place. And I think that's at the heart of a lot of the conflict we have now, which has finally come to a head in the Democratic Party which is the suburban Democrats, the ones who are like, I don't want anything to do with labor, with class consciousness. I'm a suburban person, but I care about certain issues. And those certain issues, maybe it's just one issue, I don't know, or maybe it's three issues, but it's just a handful of issues. And that happens to fall on platforms that the Democratic Party serves versus this other side who's like, I haven't bought into the suburban ideal. I actually criticize that. And there's a lot of things that we still need to fix. And I think that is the struggle right now is the suburbanites versus the people who recognize we're all employees here. So to go off what you said, Sam, it seems that the majority of people who are anti-union, even though they are employees, seem to have this mindset that it's us versus them. And if you were any good, you wouldn't need a union. I made it without a union. Why is it that you can't? Maybe if you were better at your profession, you wouldn't need to collectively bargain because you could stand out as an individual. I've often made this point in the past that the UFC has proof that trickle-down economics doesn't work and that among all the people, they would benefit from a collective bargaining source. And when you have the suburbanites or aka in the UFC example, fighters who are in the top five or top 10, they might say, well, why do I need a union? I'm getting paid. I'm main event. I don't need that kind of help. Whereas everyone else could say, hey, we're being exploited. This is not okay. We're all fighters at the end of the day. We should stick together. And even then with the highest paid fighters in the UFC, they still don't get paid nearly what NBA players or football players or people who are in unions get because there's still that one person. And whenever Connors fought the billionaire class, which is Dana and used to be the Fertitta brothers, the millionaire loses to the billionaire, right? And so in, let's say the NBA, they're all millionaires, but collective bargaining with them as a unit versus the billionaires, which are the owners, right? That's a lot more power, even for the best players, even for a LeBron or Kobe. Like Leslie Smith asked Kobe about the need of unions and he's a mega millionaire. He was one of the highest paid basketball players of all time. And he's like, no shit, of course you need one, you know? And you look at something like boxing, which has made so much money for promoters and has a longer history than the UFC. 
And because of the Ali Act, fighters have a little bit more say now, much more say than MMA fighters. But over there, you see when promoters have all the power and they still don't have collective bargaining, it doesn't lead to meritocracy or you get what you deserve. It just leads to corruption. And that's why people who are in boxing, even old timers who might have conservative values, so they might even identify with certain conservatives, just because of their involvement in boxing, they realize the importance of regulation. You need regulation to make games fair. You need a commission to make games fair. You need a referee to make games fair. Because if you don't have those things, then maybe day one is fair, but by that afternoon, it's completely a rigged game. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I'm not going to name any names, but I've trained with professional MMA fighters, including UFC fighters. And there's this sort of weird duality where they all recognize that they're being underpaid and they recognize that they're being exploited. But they're also sort of thinking, oh, it doesn't matter. I'm going to be world champion someday. And so, you know, I can I can suffer this exploitation now, but someday I'm going to be headlining pay-per-view cards. And, you know, they, they have such strong belief in themselves, which is part of being a fighter. So it makes sense. But it also prevents them from further strengthening their, their solidarity with their fellow fighters. And it's very unfortunate because they do not make a lot of money at all. And, and there's not too much else you can do uh, without getting too distracted from the fight game, which you can't be distracted or your opponent who isn't distracted is going to whip your ass. I think there's two things with that. One of it connects to what we were just talking about with suburbs is that aspirational thinking, which I think a lot of times aspirational thinking, which is good if you need motivation to get out of bed or you have depression, I don't know, for some self-help reason, but it shouldn't be the way you think about politics. It shouldn't be the way you think about material change or material power because it will fuck you up because that is how you will do things against your own best interests. You will screw yourself over. Great. That self-help book you're reading is doing a lot of things for you emotionally. Don't make that your Bible for political thinking. The second part of this is a lot of MMA fighters and a lot of actually MMA fans, MMA is the only sport they've watched. So I think a lot of it comes from ignorance. They've never watched basketball or football or whatever. You'll hear MMA fighters say, I've never seen another sport. I don't know anything about other sports. You'll see analysts say this because they don't know anything about these other sports that have unions. Just out of ignorance, they don't know the value of those unions. But... On the flip side, a lot of MMA writers and MMA journalists, they cover multiple sports. So they know everything about all these other sports. So they've witnessed firsthand the power and the benefit of players' unions for the players. It has nothing to do with ideology. It has everything to do with empiricism. They've seen it. They know what good it does. So it affects their thinking. And I think it's more of a personality test. People who know nothing about other sports go into MMA. And because they know nothing about other sports, they know nothing about unions, and they know nothing about how it could help them. And the ones that do know about other sports, I think they're the ones who are like, oh, yeah, I get it. I I completely see the need. And I think that's also in general how a lot of people feel about unions, period. They don't know anything about unions. And I would even argue that a bad union, like as corrupt as they can get, is still better than no union. Absolutely. That's the part they miss because they always point out, well, that's a bad union. And it's like, yeah, it's bad. But you're claiming getting rid of that is better 
than keeping it. And that's not true. It's like you want a 10 and it's giving you a two, but it's still a two and you get rid of it and you get a zero if we were to think about it quantitatively. Yeah, I'd much rather be protected by a leaky dam that has some holes than literally no dam at all, just be swept away by the river. Both of you mentioned something regarding the UFC unions and corporations. And to try to tie it all back, I think the biggest thing that the employer or corporations fear is the one thing that players in the NBA, NFL, and MLB have done, which is to strike. Because if fighters strike or if workers strike, then the corporation loses their biggest revenue generator. And there have been seasons in major sports where there's no game because the players have decided, no, this isn't fair. You negotiate a new TV deal and this isn't what we discuss. We're not going to play. And if UFC fighters happen to do that and says, hey, we have another sponsor that we're not seeing a dime off of, forget it. We're not fighting. None of us are. You can go ahead and try to pull someone from World Series of Fighting or Ryzen or Veltor. But if they decide, oh, wait, we're not going to see a dime of that either, forget it. And to tie it back into suburban thinking, it might be that aspiration of, oh, one day I can make it. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with aspiring. But the system or a corporation shouldn't be another thing you fight to get there. That shouldn't be an obstacle you have to overcome. It should just be something that helps you along, not a detriment to your journey. A strike makes it apparent the moment it happens how valuable the workers are. So we might think it's annoying or whatever, but why do we even think it's annoying? If we were going to stick with the example of the UFC, we think of the brand and Dana White, that's the UFC. That's what we think now. But if the fighters were to go on strike, we realize, oh shit, no, none of that is the UFC. The fighters are the UFC because without that organizing body, you could still kind of figure out a way to get the fights to happen. Without fighters, you don't get anything to happen. Without workers, you don't get anything to happen. And that's the power of the strike. You make it apparent right away what the real value is, what the real company is. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, you know, the the people in charge of the organization, they make things function, but you literally could not have a fighting championship without any fighters. They're the main reason at the end of the day why 99% of the people are, are tuning in to watch a fight card. And so they should get a lion's share of the profits, but they don't. And I think the UFC is unique in that out of all the sports, the split the actual athletes get is the lowest. It's lower than all the major league sports that the UFC always says it wants to be in the same conversation with. And it's also lower than boxing. So it's the Wild West. It's unfeathered. And the laws aren't keeping up with the UFC. So the UFC, until they get their hands slapped, are going to do whatever they want. And going back to my point about unions and MMA fighters, how a lot of times they oppose it because they don't know anything about unions. Same thing for us. We oppose unions a lot of times because we don't know anything about it. And I think about just social consciousness and just pop cultural touchstones and what we are aware of. We know about Netflix shows. We know about the Apple. But I was thinking about this. I saw the movie Sorry to Bother You, which was about unions, right? Love that movie. And that movie wasn't a huge hit, but it got some notoriety. And I was trying to think back again, wait a minute, when was the last time I saw an actual movie about unions? And I think it came out before I was even born. The last movie I can remember was Norma Ray with Sally Fields. My point is, is that there's nothing 
in our pop cultural reference consciousness, whatever you want to call it, that teaches us about unions. And so the only thing we ever hear about unions is from the critics. We learn about it from the people who hate it. And that's not the people you want to learn about it from. And that's the same problem we have with racism. You hear about a group, but you hear about it from the person who hates that group. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's this mixture of power and ignorance, right? Like it, it's people who benefit from that ignorance trying to perpetuate it, but then because of that they're they're gaining material advantages from it. And with the union thing though, I I think it is fortunate that at least from what I've seen, uh, a lot of my friends who were formerly very apolitical or just kind of like, you know, a lukewarm sort of moderate or whatever. They've warmed up to the idea of unions. And I think it's also part of the reason why, for example, Bernie Sanders has gotten so popular uh, and a movie like Sorry to Bother You can be such a hit. I don't think 10 years ago, Sorry to Bother You or Bernie Sanders would have been as much of a hit as they are now um, because of the increasing erosion of the protections of, you know, the post-World War II liberal uh, democratic order. And so I kind of mentioned this before, but I see ourselves heading toward an, uh, a, a fork in the road where it's like, do we embrace a sort of Bernie style re- return to FDR New Dealism? Do we go in a very ugly direction like we have with Trump so far? Do we keep pretending nothing is wrong and just go with a centrist Democrat and watch things further erode? Do we go with something even left of FDR and, and see if we can work more toward a utopia? I think that's a big crossroad that we're going toward and something that I, I think has really uh, revealed itself in, uh, again, some of the, the things that we're seeing, but also on the political level, you know, all these teacher strikes that we've had over the last couple of years, we're, we're having strikes that are, we're having strikes in numbers that we haven't seen for decades because organized labor is starting to resurge. Uh, even in my own personal life, I have relatives who used to kind of just say that like unions were corrupt, but if you ask them for any specifics, they wouldn't really have anything to say because they didn't even really themselves know what they were talking about. They just had this vague notion that unions were corrupt and unnecessary. But these same relatives of mine have even started liking posts on my Facebook when I post about, like, for example, fast food workers unionizing, because I think the more, you know, like capitalism as it is starts to erode and the less protections there are, the more people are going to kind of start to realize out of necessity, like, oh, yeah, things suck. Um, Using my mom as an example, She's uh, she's always been like a Democrat, but she was kind of more moderate in the past. And then in 2013, a year before I graduated from undergrad, she lost her job because she just had an asshole of a coworker. And so for, I think, like half a year or something, she kind of just chilled because she was used to the old job market. She was used to the way things used to be. And so she just kind of relaxed. She applied for a couple jobs, but she would get callbacks and she'd say, wait, that's the salary you're offering me? No way. Because again, she wasn't in that much of a rush to get back. And she kind of had this misplaced faith that when she really wanted to hit the pavement to get a new job, that she could just easily get one, right? And so I think after like a year, year and a half, it kind of, when she started really focusing on getting her job back or getting a new job, 
it kind of started to to dawn on her like, oh shit, like the job market is just not what it used to be. I'm not going to get paid what I used to get paid. And not just because I'm a little bit older, but just the job market has entirely shifted. It's harder to get a well-paying job. And even those so-called well-paying jobs are, they, they pay the same wages they did decades ago. And so I was actually kind of fortunate because when I graduated from UC Irvine, I had trouble getting a job just like everyone else my age. And I was fortunate because my mom was more exposed to the realities of the job market as they are. And a lot of my other friends who were in the same boat, but their parents, you know, had been working for the same company or wherever they had been working for 20 years or or 30 years, they would, you know, just be on their backs constantly about, oh, it's not that hard to get a job. You need to stop being lazy. And it really psychologically hurt them. And I didn't have to deal with that because my mom understood how the system is. And now she's definitely uh, a lot more progressive, uh, a lot more to the left. She went to like a Bernie Sanders rally uh, a few months ago. And so, yeah, even people that were more moderate, I think, are now seeing that their interests uh, are not necessarily the interest of like big capital and that their interests are more aligned with unions than big business. Something you said, which we hear a lot, is unions are corrupt. And I'm glad that, you know, people in your life are shifting. But just to go back to that kind of idea that is this viral contagion that everybody has, how crazy that is. Because unions are corrupt. That's just a sentence fragment. The context of that is basically unions are corrupt in relative comparison to big companies is what they're really saying. That's what they really believe. Because who's their adversary? Big companies. So when they're saying that, they're saying the other guy must not be corrupt. And it's like, if you actually hear yourself say that out loud, unions are corrupt. Okay, compared to what? Uh, what's the other option without unions? Oh, just big companies, my employer. So you're telling me that unions are more corrupt than these big companies. And just when you hear that thought out loud, you realize how ridiculous that sounds. And secondly, another viral contagion, who knows when it started and maybe it's inborn, but I don't think so. I think it's conditioned into us. There's a lot of basic assumptions, I think, Paul was touching on it and you just touched upon it, which is that critics of unions or worker rights, they have this assumption that the world is fair. So ergo, if you're not getting something, then you must not have worked this hard. And it's like, hard stop. World is not fair. Where did you get the idea that the world is fair? Which is also weird because the same people who call you lazy or whatever, will be the first ones to tell you the world is not fair. So if the world is not fair, then this probably has nothing to do with me being lazy. So it's again, if they say their ideas out loud, it makes no sense. It's frustrating if you're aware of the nonsense that's being spewed, but it is this weird belief where I guess maybe it's comfort at the end where it's like my beliefs going back to the self-help thing is maybe it's not about what would be best for the world or what would be best policies, but what are the best beliefs for me to hold to keep my psyche intact? Mm -hmm. For me to think that I'm going to headline a UFC and we don't need collective bargaining, that you get what you deserve, that the world is fair, but this other person complaining, well, the world's not fair, like whatever I'm thinking. And then I guess even can later on, if I really buy into it, vote on 
It's just a way to think about things so I don't feel so vulnerable. Do you think that's a fear or lack of critical thinking or deductive reasoning where it's easier to just accuse you of certain things or, well, that's just what I think, instead of actually having to think through thoughts or having to say things out loud and realize, well, that's stupid. I actually think it's more fear-based. I think a lot of that type of toxic beliefs or toxic policies, they just come from fear. You look at Trump, right? Now, right-wing politics has nothing to do with right-wing or libertarian economics. It's completely about xenophobia and immigration and nationalism, right? There's no way to sell those things without fear. You can't sell those things on a promise of hope. Maybe the promise of hope is still fear-based. We're going to get rid of them, right? But if you were somebody who didn't have fear, then why would you give a shit? It's like, okay, you're going to do that? Okay, you're gonna, you guys are going to join up together and, and form a union? I guess you do you. It's all good. I don't care, right? You would be more ambivalent to it. To be so against it has to come from fear. So maybe where critical thinking can come in is if you believe you could reason your way out of those feelings. But if you know anything about psychology, it's really hard to reason your way out of fear or emotions. So much so that the most reliable and dependable and most often recommended form of therapy is no longer trying to help people reason out of things because it's so difficult. Not that it won't work. I'm sure it's helped a lot of people. But what's more dependable is just to change their habits and leave their irrational thinking alone. Just kind of get them to modify their behavior, right? Instead of trying to get people to reason their way out of stuff. And so, yeah, critical thinking is a solution, but it's not that they lack that thing. It's really hard to use it to overcome your fears, like fear of death. That is not rational, meaning we didn't reason it out. We didn't one day think about it and think, oh, I'm going to decide to fear this thing. That is the rational, reasonable thing to do. No, we never reasoned it out, but try to reason your way out of fear of death. It's really fucking difficult. And so it's easy to harp on people and say, oh, they're not critically thinking, they're stupid or whatever. I actually think it's just that people with those kind of problematic beliefs are the most fearful people. And fear can turn into anger. Fear can turn into political action. It could turn into a lot of things that don't work towards the positive, but it isn't stupidity-based. Because a lot of times, quote unquote, stupid people, however you want to define it, right? It's not the nicest term, but my point is, is they could still be on the right side of things. That's another problematic belief that if somebody is of low intelligence, that'll automatically make them bad. And that's not true either. Being good or bad or moral or immoral, meaning trying to lessen human suffering is not an IQ test. In fact, historically, the smartest countries with the highest literacy rates have often been the most problematic and violent and oppressive countries. You look at World War II, you had Japan and Germany. They were the two smartest countries with the highest literacy. So it, this is a dangerous thing to associate morality with intelligence. And also, I think in itself, it's a bias to believe that we can reason our way out of everything. It is possible, yes, but is it practical? Not always. Yeah, definitely. And I definitely agree with not being comfortable with the equation of 
intelligence with critical thinking and just the ability to be empathetic. I mean, I would take some random person from the barrio over Elliot Abrams to help me any day of the week. I mean, a lot of these people who commit atrocities at at the highest ranks, they're not stupid. They're very highly educated. I, I think there's debate to be had whether or not, you know, they're at the end of the day, they're in a seedy conference room that's poorly lit and they're all maniacally laughing while chomping on cigars. Like maybe they're not that consciously evil, but at the end of the day, they are very aware of what they are doing to some extent, and they are very uh, highly educated. And a lot of uh, a, a lot of talk about and concepts of stuff like IQ are based in like old school race science and and xenophobia against other cultures as well. Um, I mean, if you go to someone, if you go to like an indigenous person who's you know living in the mountains of Guatemala, they're not going to know the same level of algebra as you. But there's a lot of things they can do that we can't. And just as a side of a sort of side tangent, it's kind of incredible that we look down on indigenous people for not being ad- as advanced as us. We're literally fucking destroying the planet. Indigenous people or places where like indigenous people have more sovereignty than than we do, they are doing a much better job of preserving the planet. So they are literally like responsible older siblings who are making sure we don't burn the house down. We're burning down our sections of the house and we're looking at indigenous people like, oh, you guys are so simple and primitive. It's like, no, like we're fucking as a whole, because obviously everyday people aren't the one making these decisions. Um, And a lot, again, a lot of like good policies that are supported by a lot of people aren't implemented because of special interests. But the people who are in power are irresponsible children in the grand scheme of things whereas you know a lot of indigenous groups not just in the americas but in you know parts of the uh, all over the world uh, are the ones who are doing a better job of preserving the world and so it just always strikes me as incredible the way people talk about like intelligence and culture and sophistication yeah we think these other people those who are not like us not like us in the suburbs or not like us in the good schools right they're the real threat and it's like no, dude, for somebody to become a supervillain, they first have to be super, right? They have to be <laughs> in a position to do supervillainy. We fear these really poor, small countries. They're so bad and bad people come out of that place. And it's like, no, dude, the only countries that could fuck up the world are the super countries. The ones who are in a position have the ability and capability to do massive damage. Let's use dogs for a second, right? Who could do more damage? a giant pit bull versus a chihuahua. The chihuahua can have as many bad intents as it wants, but what's it going to do, right? It's limited. Whereas the big pit bull, and I know a lot of people defend pit bulls. I'm not saying they're bad dogs or anything. This is just for the sake of analogy, but it doesn't need that much bad intent. It could have just a little bit of bad intent, one tenth of the intent of the chihuahua, and it just has much more capacity to do damage. And that's how we got to think about the educated class, the rich class. We think they're going to be our moral saviors. And it's like they're also in the position to do the most damage. And we look at these countries with the most GDP. They're also in the position to do the most amount of damage. So we're always looking at the wrong bad guys or the wrong threats. Like I was telling somebody about how, according to a lot of surveys, when people in other countries think about 
the biggest threat to them, they often cite the U.S. And it's like, what? Why? We're such a rich country. And it's like, yeah, but whatever country we fear don't have the infrastructure, the power, the ability to be everywhere at once and fuck with every other country, whereas we do and we do. Yeah, that's a great point. I actually specifically really love the pitbull chihuahua analogy because I've, I've had that exact same thought. I, I love animals. Uh, pitbulls are great. But when really hardcore pitbull defenders are like, well, according to studies, chihuahuas are more aggressive than pitbulls. Like you said, like, I don't give a fuck about an aggressive chihuahua. I'm going to laugh as it, as it tries to bite my ankles. Like it can't do anything. Whereas an aggressive pitbull absolutely can so i think that's a great great comparison it's the same way people defend people like warren buffett and bill gates because like oh they give to charity and whatever and it's like that's cool man but as the billionaire class they also have the most amount of ability to affect our lives whereas this poor person in some bad situation does not have the ability to affect the rest of the country yeah absolutely i mean elliot abrams is responsible for a hundredfold times more pain and suffering than the worst serial killer that's ever existed, right? Like, uh, I don't know, Jeffrey Dahmer has not done a thousandth of the damage to the human population that Elliot Abrams has. And not just Elliot Abrams, I, I focus on him because he's such a just stark example of that. But, you know, Dick Cheney, um, Henry Kissinger, may he die soon, just all these other people who are responsible for mass human suffering for no good reason and get off completely scot-free. Well, look at the names you listed, right? We're talking about these ghouls and we're talking about education and whatever and intelligence. And it's like all those ghouls have like Ivy League education, right? (laughs) That doesn't mean you become a good guy. In fact, that Ivy League education puts you in an ability to do more harm because now because of that, because of that on your resume, you could get these jobs in a company or get these government jobs and can just kind of fuck up the world, you know? Absolutely. I mean, fucking Harriet Tubman, I'm pretty sure she didn't know how to read when she was when she was conducting the Underground Railroad. And if you want to tell me that that fucking Dick Cheney, for example, or Kissinger is a better person than fucking Harriet Tubman, I don't even want to look at you. So yeah, the the idea that again, that intelligence and, and critical thinking and empathy are in any way connected is just a silly, silly idea. I think if there's one takeaway from this episode, it's fuck Elliot Abrams. Gonna have to co-sign that one. All right, David, where can people find you? So you can find me at Facebook. My name is David Hollingsworth. I have a picture with my fiance. Uh, if you're friends with with Sam or Paul on Facebook, we'll, we'll be mutuals so you can tell that way. I also have a blog. The URL is insert Dave pun here dot blogspot dot com. And so I just talk about a variety of things, politics, history, video games, movies, just kind of whatever strikes my interest. I'll include the links on the show notes, but also you can find David on our Southpaw Discord channel under Dave of Reckoning. So if you want to ask him some questions, you could join us there and you could also talk to me and Paul. The channel, however, is only available to our Bad Mighty 50 Patreon sponsors, so more reason to become a BMFer. Do it, y'all. It's made me a better lover. It's made me a better mentor to the kids that I work for. It's just made me a better person just by being part of the Discord, so uh, y'all should sign up too. Didn't y'all say it added two inches to your vertical leap? 
it just improved my life. It, it, it refinanced my home, which is weird because I don't even have a home. And every time we get a new Patreon sponsor, a baby unicorn is born. <laughs>